It's great to be able to take part in the study and uh, open the word with you again tonight. Um, you know, the other day <clears throat> I got on the scale and uh, it read 106. And I know what you're thinking, 106 does not look this good. <laughs> I was amazed, just like you are. <laughs> and for a moment I felt really good. I was like, I can't believe it. And then I realized, I don't think I even weighed 106 in elementary school. <laughs> it's been a while. And then I came back to reality and realized that my scale was stuck on kilograms instead of pounds. <laughs> and I realized, man, I'm, I'm not using the right like system of measurement here. So I switched the, I changed the switch and then I got on and then the depression of reality hit. Um, so I'm not gonna tell you what that said. I'll let you do the math yourself. Um, but that made me wonder how well, how effectively, how well do we measure growth? Are we using the right standard of measurement? And as you look through the book of James, um, we can see James recognized that his congregation in Jerusalem wasn't using the right standard of measurement. Uh, they weren't measuring their growth correctly. And tonight we're going to look and we're going to find out that, again, they weren't even using the right standard of measurement. And I think James noticed the people in his church um, thought they were mature when they really weren't. And that's one of the many reasons why this book uh, of James is here and why we're studying it tonight. Because with the same very issues that James dealt with in the first century church are the very same issues we're dealing with in the 21st century church. So we're, we know God's word is timeless. It speaks to every generation, every people group, every time, every culture. So no, no matter where you're from, no matter when you live, no matter what ethnic group you come from or economic background you live in, whatever we're gonna read and hear tonight, it's for you and it's for me. So when I read the book of James, <clears throat> I see James as a doctor as a doctor who wants to help each one of us to grow up. So as you go through the book of James, James is prescribing courses of treatment that are gonna help us to grow up in the faith. You know, a lot of people talk about faith and works in James and really James is telling you, hey guys, I want you to grow up and I want you to demonstrate a faith that works. So, and that's what James describes throughout his book. With each chapter, he identifies issues that prevent growth and then prescribes a course of treatment that will help us to grow up. He shows with each passage, hey, you wanna grow up? Then follow this course of treatment. Then have a faith that works. And guys, this, as he shows us the treatment in the book of James is what a faith that works looks like. So we've already gone through the first course of treatment in chapter one, uh, and now we're gonna move on to chapter two, as Bruce said. Uh, chapter one, he called all of his readers to internalize this medicine of the word of God and let that word of God work out in our lives so thoroughly that God's word, wisdom, grace, mercy flows out of every action we do. God's word, the perfect law, the law of freedom, the law of liberty, the very law of the king is the mirror to which we're to look into to track our progress. And now James is going to um, help us as we read here how to apply, right? He knows that as we read the word, we're gonna be quick to hear, but slow to apply, right? We're gonna start taking our medicine and then get tired and get weak and put it down, right? We're gonna start to work out like everybody does in January. And by the third, fourth day, <laughs> we're not working out anymore. And James knows that. He knows that we're gonna start making excuses just like I did this morning when I stood on my scale and I said, you know, those extra pounds are from pure muscle. Do you do that? Some of you really have pure muscle, but... The rest of us have to imagine that. So James calls his readers to live out their faith, a faith that works. So uh, that's why James brings chapter one to a close. I want to remind you a little bit about what you looked at last week. So at the end of chapter one, James closes his thoughts with a concept that he carries over into chapter two. And actually it sets up all 
of chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, uh, look up with me at James 1, verse 26, and then we'll kind of get a running start in uh, to chapter 2. So verse 26, he says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James is reminding his readers here of what the correct standard of measurement is. Uh, James is saying, friends, if you look into the mirror and you find religion as your rule, then, then you're going to lean towards judgment and then you're really no better off than an unbeliever. But if you look into the mirror and find relationship, pure religion, then you're going to lean towards mercy. That's where believers live. That's where believers grow. Someone with this kind of faith doesn't look, does look forward to judgment, right? Those of us who have embraced mercy, we do look forward to judgment, but only because we have embraced and experienced the reality of mercy. Mercy's better, right? Given a choice between judging and mercy, we choose mercy. So James lets that image of pure religion sink in as he carries the thought into the next section and gives us his next diagnosis for needed growth. Uh, So as we look at chapter two here, James is gonna help us understand this overarching truth. And I want you to try to think about this truth as we work through each portion of the text tonight. So that truth is this, our faith is not measured by what we avoid, but it is measured by what we embrace. Our faith is not measured by what we avoid, but by what we embrace. So like any good doctor, James has the conclusion he's giving us, but to help us come to the understanding of our need for that conclusion, he points out the problem and the solution in the passage we're gonna look at tonight. Verses one through seven, we have the problem. Verses eight through 13, we have the solution. So uh, if you have the, your copy of the word of God with you, and I think it'll be up on the screen uh, here, let's look at James chapter two and read verses one through seven together. Uh, Verse one, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Why don't we pray together before we continue? Dear Lord and God, again, we just thank you for the opportunity to open your word tonight. And uh, as James here is kind of calling out a problem and then follows it up with a solution, uh, we pray that we would be quick to hear and slow to forget, that we would be quick to apply uh, and just help us to have the, the integrity, the dignity, the um, stamina that we need Uh, to follow your word well and to apply it to our lives. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for every man that's here. And I pray that we would respond to your word well tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So James starts this section by catching our attention when he says, my brothers. That's kind of like today, if we were writing a letter, we would say, hey, listen up, this is important. You wanna grow up in the faith? You wanna become mature? Then you need to deal with this issue. And the problem is one of partiality, favoritism. The word for partiality here um, is a compound word that's like two words squeezed together that literally means the receiving of the face. So this phrase came from the people giving attention to someone based on their face, right? How attractive they were, how, uh, how cultural they were, how much education they had, how much money they had, how much status they had, regardless of their merit or character. So if their face looked good, 
then they got a lot of attention. So James is effectively saying, yeah, I know what I'm getting ready to say is countercultural. Okay, I know that in our church here, Jews and Gentiles still don't like each other. (laughs) And I know that the world out there says, do all you can so that everyone sees your face. But James says, stop it. This, This is the church. That can't happen in here. Our unity and our acceptance and our love has nothing to do with our face, but it has everything to do with our faith. Culture can't be allowed to triumph over God's word, but that's what exactly what was happening in the church in the, 20, in the first century. And unfortunately, it still happens today in the 21st century. James is going to help us understand that Christianity mixed with partiality or with favoritism is not Christianity at all. It's a different gospel, and we need to stay away from it as far as we can. One author said that favoritism in it is an indication of a heart without grace, a heart that's absent of grace. So it's almost as if James is anticipating the reader saying, like what? Like we, we don't have a problem with that. We love everyone, right? We're Christians. We would never show favoritism to anyone. And I could see James kind of anticipating this by saying, oh, really? Let me tell you a story. James then describes the situation that's presented as a hypothetical situation that was really happening. Have you ever done that before with your kids? Be like, well, let's, let's just say that the car got front, like totaled. And the kid's sitting there thinking like, oh yeah, I remember I did that. Like that's kind of what James is doing here. He's like, let's just pretend that there's this situation of something that's happening in the church that should not be. So so that we understand the picture clearly, we've already read the account here. If you have your copy of God's word, just kind of glance down. Verses two and three indicate that there's this worship service that's already started. It's already in progress when two men walk into the assembly. One is described as wearing gold fingers and fine clothes. The wording used literally means um, gold fingered. um, Excuse me, it literally means like bright, right? Shining and bright. So it's like a spotlight is on him as he walks into the assembly. In the Roman culture, uh, the wealthy would wear rings on every finger to show their status or their wealth. And actually in the community, shops popped up that would actually rent out rings. So if you weren't high enough income level to afford rings, you could go like to the pawn shop and you could rent the rings by the hour (laughs) so that you could just show off how hot stuff you were when you went to the assembly. So this man is all dressed as if he owns the place, right? He walks into the congregation and everybody's impressed. Uh, This is somebody with power, with money, with influence, and everybody in the congregation wants to be just like him. The service almost comes to a halt when the ushers, who probably were the deacons, kind of escort him uh, to a seat, the best seat in the house, which is where? Well, in this church, it was down front, right? In our church, maybe, it may be a different spot. But uh, the service, I grew up in a Baptist church, and the best seats in the house that everybody wanted to get were in the back row, right? (laughs) So the service kind of picks up and this second man walks in. Okay, this second guy is described as shabby or filthy clothing. This guy was probably wearing the only piece of clothing that he owned. The phrase poor man here is the same word that you would use to describe a homeless person. Uh, So he may very well have looked like he climbed out of the dumpster and then came into the assembly. That kind of, that's a good description of what he could have worked, looked like. He obviously has no money. He has no influence. He has nothing that anyone wants. No one even wants him to be there. And he's told to stand in the corner or sit on the floor. So the poor man, we need to understand this, doesn't come into the assembly looking for money though. We need to get that clear. The implication of the text, I believe, is that both the rich and the poor man are unbelievers. And they're coming into the assembly that day to see what the church has to offer. 
What, what do you believe in here? We're going to find out what they learned that day in a minute. Verse 3, James says, You pay attention to one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, You sit over there, sit down in my feet. So the rich man gets all the attention, right? That verb means to look or to stare with admiration or to gawk. So when the rich man walks in, everybody stops and stares with covetous envy while the poor man is ignored, pushed aside and treated as if he has no value. And unfortunately on on that day, when these two unbelievers walk into the assembly, they find out that the church believes in here exactly what the world believes out here. Money talks. The point James is making here isn't that it's bad to be rich. What he is doing is he's giving us this contrast of rich and poor, the rich man and the poor man. The reason he gives us that is to help us focus on what our personal reaction is to either man. When we see the rich man walk in, are we tempted to favor him over the guy that thinks he has no value? That's the temptation. The cultural norms of that day that were on the outside had now come in to the assembly. Culture was literally triumphing over God's word. The people were using cultural norms as the standard of measurement for their maturity instead of the truth of God's word is that mirror that they were supposed to gauge their maturity by. And James addresses it head on and just says, stop it. Now you might be thinking, Stephen, I think you're breeding into this a bit too much. I think, I mean, what's the big deal? I think you're making a big deal about something that just isn't such a bad thing. I mean, it happens. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus walked into an assembly when he was in his 20s, after putting in a hard day's work at the carpentry shop, which one of these two men do you think he would have been more like? And how do you think he would have been received in this church? Verse four through seven highlight the seriousness of this issue. Look at verse four. Okay, I want you to get this. What's the big deal? The big deal is this, partiality is evil. Verse four, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This verse is nothing less than a summary of what God thinks about what has just happened in this situation, in this church. If you look at chapter two, verse nine, James make it even even more clear. Verse nine says, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and, and are convicted by the law's transgressors. So the church is the place to demonstrate how to think correctly, how to value others according to God's culture, not man's. The exact opposite is is happening in this church right now, the one that James is describing. And how tragic it is when the church does in here what the world teaches out there. In verses two through four, James is giving us the human perspective, right? The world's perspective. Money talks. If you were to read through verses five through seven, James turns the perspective around and shows us how things are viewed from God's point of view. And from God's point of view, mercy wins. So James has condemned this assembly for their sinful attitude Next, he challenges the fact they're thinking, right? That their thinking is actually contradicting the very nature of God. So not only is partiality evil, partiality contradicts the gospel. So James grabs his reader's attention again when he says, listen, my beloved brothers, in verse five, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Guys, we're being reminded here that God has chosen the poor to be rich in something other than monetary wealth. Instead of lots of land and properties received by inheritance, the poor or those who feel like they have no value hold titles as heirs of God's kingdom. 
Now, James isn't saying we have to be poor in order to be an heir of heaven, right? Or, or that all of those that think they have new value are automatically rich as heirs of his kingdom. James here is qualifying that the kingdom he has in mind, as he says, the one that he has promised to those who love him. Okay, gaining this inheritance is still a matter of faith, but, but James, again, is trying to get our attention by casting the poor, right, the valueless, in a particular light. His point is that our right, prejudice, our partiality kind of behavior dishonors those who are considered by the culture to have less value. So when we show partiality, we're, we're literally saying that this person is valueless in God's sight. James isn't saying that, that the wealthy don't have access to the gospel, but he is saying that those who the culture say have no value have just as much access to the gospel as anyone, maybe even more. The gospel of Christ's love is especially precious to the poor and to those who think they have no value. And James wants us to know that the person that thinks, James wants you to know this, if you came here tonight and feel like you have no value, be amazed at this truth. Through faith in Jesus Christ, God grants you eternal value. We all, we all have times, right, where we just feel down, like I can't do anything, I'm not worth anything, I have no value. Well, your value is in your relationship with Christ. And that value is worth an eternal sum that we can't even fathom. That's how much value we have. So, Put your mind back in this, this uh, illustration of this assembly. If you'd been pre- present that day, what would you conclude? Here's what I think you would conclude. Well, the rich man must be more important to the church than the poor man. And maybe God likes rich men better than he likes poor men because he made them rich. Or maybe you would conclude that God doesn't like poor people or maybe poor people deserve to sit on the floor. Or you would have walked away from that service that money talks and out there in the world as well as in here in the church. Or you might have learned that, yep, those pastors, they're just going to cater to people with money. Each, Each of those perceptions could have been learned that day in this rich man, poor man worship service. Now, how many people come through our doors and they have an experience in our assembly and maybe walk away with the same thought. When those lessons are learned and lived out, those in the church become spiritual snobs, receiving people because of their faith and not their faith. That's the problem. Irrational snobbery. (laughs) That's what James is telling us to stop it. If these lessons aren't corrected, then it's nothing less than sinful thinking and absolutely contrary to the gospel. Now, verse six, um, James also points out that part of the problem is that partiality, is, it doesn't make sense. It's irrational. All right, let's look through that quickly. In verse six and seven, James reminds his readers of something that they should already know. Right? He asks them a question. Are not the rich exploiting you and they themselves dragging you into court? In other words, he's saying, what are you thinking? Right, you've tripped over yourselves to honor the very person on Sunday that's going to drag you into court on Monday. It doesn't make sense. In the first century, there was a legal custom called summary arrest in which uh, a creditor could, uh, if he came across a debtor on the street, he could just grab you by the co- clothing, by the cloak, and drag you into court on the spot. And because of his influence and money, they oftentimes were able to throw the debtor into prison really for no reason. And the poor, or those that were in debt, didn't have the influence to, to fight back against that. They had no representation. So again, James is not condemning the rich for having influence and power, but he is condemning the rich for using that influence and power to gain advantage over other people, to demonstrate partiality and we show partiality to those in power often they are wealthy they are well connected Um, 
But the, the last part of verse seven tells us that these people are acting in a way that actually blasphemes the good name of God. If you look at verse seven, in general terms, James is telling us favoritism creates friendship with blasphemers. The, the phrase translated there, the name by which you are called, is the same word that's used for when a wife takes her husband's last name. So James is trying to wake us up to the reality that we are the bride of Christ. Are we really going to fuss and to covet after someone who blasphemes the very name of our bridegroom, of our Lord? When you see two newlyweds, if somebody starts picking on that, that bride's groom, what's she going to do? Well, hopefully she's going to stick up for him <laughs> and vice versa. So James is saying, guys, it's all wrong. It's irrational. Stop it. He's using these examples to shake up our sensibilities, to make us rethink the basis for how we treat people. So the world honors money over godliness. James says, if you're going to grow up in the faith, if you want to have a faith that works, then you can't follow the cultural norms. We've got to adopt God's point of view and honor godliness over money or over possessions or over position. The word of God has to reign in our hearts. The word of God has to triumph over culture. And if, if you're asking yourself, well, where did James get this idea? Well, I think he got it from his brother. Is if, <laughs> if you look at Luke verse six, verse thir- chapter six, verses 31 through 34, Jesus said, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lead to sinners to get back the same amount. Men, when unbelievers come in here, Right, when unbelievers out there right, come in here into the assembly, we have to make sure that they realize that what we believe, what we embrace in here is absolutely different than what's embraced out there. What Jesus said in Luke 6 was absolutely countercultural to what was taught on the street. And that's the same way we have to be. So here's the reality. When we come into the assembly, into the presence of the Lord, who is glorious we all look shabby. We're all the poor man. We all look dirty compared to Christ's holiness. We all look hopeless. We all look homeless. How can we ever act like snobs? You want some good news? It's been very uplifting so far, right? <laughs> so, so here's the good news. We look shabby, but now we are saints. We are dirty, but we're clean through Christ's atonement. We are hopeless, but have been given hope of a future. We are homeless, but we've been given a royal status and value as eternal sons of God. So James shows us the problem, right? And now he's not going to just leave us hanging. He's going to give us the solution now. So the problem is this irrational snobbery, this sin of partiality. The solution is found in the next passage we're going to look at. It's starting in verse 8, is the law of love. So let's look at verse 8 together. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become, become a transgressor of the law. So there's something neat that happens here that um, I think is really cool. So uh, There's a connection here back to verse eight. So James is essentially, with the wording he uses, building a bridge from verse one to verse eight. The truth he shared in verse one, partiality is evil. 
is there's a bridge built to this with, this, with these if-then statements. Uh, so basically he's saying this, if partiality, if favoritism is evil, right? That's a negative thing. Then the positive alternative is to love our neighbor as ourselves. James describes that as carrying out the royal law. So the problem, solution. This is the only place in scripture that exact phrase is used, the royal law, uh, as far as I can tell. Um, James does give us a clue what it means as he's, he's paraphrasing what, what Jesus said in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Right? This is the greatest and first commandment and the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On all these two hang the law and the prophets. You know, later on in Jesus' ministry, he broadened what neighbors meant by pretty much anybody that's in need. So this is the king's command, right? And it beautifully reflects the heart of our king. This is nothing less than the law of our sovereign king, which flows from his perfect nature. And as we know, the law can be broken down into two relationships. Most people I know in one of the ABFs, they're kind of talking through the law, the commandments, different things right now. There's a horizontal uh, there's first the vertical, excuse me, with the Ten Commandments, the law, kind of your relationship with God. Then there's a horizontal that kind of refers to your relationship with people. Um, so when Jesus summarizes the law in Matthew 22, or when James kind of talks about what Jesus summarized, he, he pretty much boils it down to loving God and loving people, right? So during the early years of the church, um, I think this will be helpful for what we're going to do at our tables in a minute. Uh, Jewish scholars believe that the law was this series of detached commands. Um, And to keep one law was to gain credit. And to break one law was to incur debt. So a man could actually add up his credit with God or he would subtract it based on if he broke a law. So if he added up more than he subtracted, he would end his life with money in the bank. And we see how that developed through the years, right? Into something that the enemy of the gospel loves to encourage. This image of God sitting on his thrones with his hands held out, measuring out our good and our bad. But guys, the law is in a scale. The law is in a scale where God measures how much favor we have gained through our works and our actions The law is actually a chain and the law is all linked together. So James wants us to realize that making distinctions or showing partiality isn't just a bad idea, it's a sin. And when we show partiality, instead of upholding the royal law through love, we're actually convicted by that same law as transgressors. Now, again, some of you might be sitting here thinking tonight, you know, you're making a really big deal about this. You're making a lot of noise. This really isn't a big deal. If that's you, then uh, casually look down at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. The law is a chain. And if we break one link in the chain, we are lawbreakers. Imagine you were hanging over the side of a cliff by a chain. Which one of those links is the most important link? (laughs) Right, all of them. Whatever one breaks, you're falling. (laughs) So James is telling us, men, if you want to have mature faith, if you want to grow up in the faith, if you want to have a faith that works, then you'll need to do this. You'll need to first embrace the heart of God. We can only embrace God's heart if we know and obey his word. And this is where I want you to talk a bit at your tables. We're going to kind of stop for a moment and then wrap things up uh, in a few minutes. On the back of your sheets there, you've got a list of the Ten Commandments, okay, the law of God. And what I'd like for you to do, um, I think we have the instructions on the next slide here. What I'd like for you to do Um, as well as on the top of your sheet there, is discuss how you see how the sin of partiality, right, the sin of favoritism that James is talking about connects with each of the Ten Commandments. If you don't think it connects, then that's fine. Move on to the next one. But take, let's take maybe eight, nine minutes um, and discuss that. How do you think this connects with the Ten Commandments? And then we're gonna do some um, 
discussion afterwards and kind of I'll walk through them and uh, share with you some of the answers that I got when I did this. So let's take some time and do that. A lot of good discussion going on and um, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to cut you short so that we can kind of really think about this. And there's a reason for me to have you go through that that exercise. So I'll try to work through this quickly. Um, So what what we're doing, I call this grouting. You know, if you look at kind of teaching the word is laying tile, then sometimes you need to break up into group work and you need to talk about it so you can fill in all the gaps. So that's kind of what we're doing. And hopefully you'll see the purpose behind this. So how does the sin of partiality connect with the Ten Commandments? Some are easier than others. Some are harder to think through. So let me give you some suggestions, or at least some of the things I was thinking. So the first and the second commandment, they're broken because God commands us not to show partiality, and to do so is to deny his will and to place ourselves above his, right? To place our will above his therefore idolizing our opinions instead of God's alone, right? Direct disobedience. Showing partiality says, God, I know more than you. My opinion's worth more than yours is. The third commandment, right? Don't misuse the name of God. The third commandment is broken because to favor someone over another is to, re- is to, is to misrepresent the name of God. Right, no misuse of the Lord's name, to take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, the passage says, if you show partiality, you're making friends with, right, with blasphemers. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Right? The fourth commandment is broken when we show favoritism in the church, thus defiling our sacred worship. Right, if we're in the assembly and we're worshiping the Lord and something like favoritism catches our attention, we're taking our worship away from the Lord and giving it to that person. It breaks the fourth commandment. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. The fifth commandment is broken as poor people are dishonored and we should not dishonor anyone, especially those whom we should be giving our care and our concern. The sixth commandment, no murder, prejudice and favoritism. Effectively, it kills the spirit and hope of people and and is demeaning to them and therefore violates the sixth commandment, no murder. You're killing their hope. You're killing their spirit. No adultery. The seventh commandment is violated as we favor the rich and the powerful and in so doing show infidelity and unfaithfulness to our Lord and to the bond of Christian fellowship. The eighth commandment, no stealing. The eighth commandment is broken as we steal from the poor the dignity that they own as image bearers of God. The ninth commandment, no false testimony, no lying. Right, bearing false witness breaks, uh, is broken because we prejudice, right? When we have prejudice, it implies that a person has less worth than another, right? And we are all created equally in God's image. So when we ha- show partiality, it's a lie. And finally, the 10th commandment, no coveting. Favoring the rich is a form of covetousness, which values possessions over and above the value of God's creation, of a human being. So the unity of the law is such that when we break one, we break them all. And I hope what to, to see that, to work through that together and wrestle with that a bit, I hope it helped us see that, again, true spiritual maturity isn't measured by what we avoid. Because let's say you avoid nine of those commandments. Hey, we don't smoke. We don't chew, All right? Can you finish it? We don't go, go with girls who do, right? <laughs> right, true spiritual maturity, true faith is measured by what we embrace, not by what we avoid. But when we embrace love, right? When we embrace Jesus's royal law, we embrace the truth that's supreme, right? Over and above the law. True love doesn't avoid the law, it fulfills it. 
right? And that's what Christ did. So James says, hey guys, you want to grow up in your faith, you need to embrace the heart of God. You have to embrace the royal law. Hey, we're going to go through these next two quickly. We have to stop making excuses. James anticipates someone in the assembly saying, okay, we could have treated the poor guy better, you're right, but at least we showed the rich guy some kindness, right? One out of two isn't bad, right? If we, if we were baseball players, we'd be batting 500. We'd be in the Hall of Fame. James anticipates the argument of, of self-defense because he knows that he's dealing with the human nature. And the human nature is really, really good at coming up with loopholes, right? And blame shifting. One author said, we have several million laws to deal with all the excuses created by people who cannot keep 10. That's right. So James anticipates pushback to his message when he writes in verse 11, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Guys, we are all lawbreakers. Again, I'm here to encourage you tonight, I promise. <laughs> We're lawbreakers, not because we've broken every law, but because we've broken the law. Guys, you, you don't go to court for speeding and stand before the judge and say, yes, your honor, I'm, I did it, but I've never murdered anyone, right? And the judge is like, oh, well, in that case, yeah, you're free to go, right? When's the last time that happened? Right, when, you, when we tell someone that they're a sinner, rarely will they say, you're right, I've done that. Usually they'll say, no, I'm not. I've never done this. I've never murdered. I've never committed adultery. I've never, that's the problem with our sin nature. We look at sins like partiality and classism and racism uh, and favoritism and say, but I've not done, ever done bigger things. I'm okay. James says, yep, there we go with that self-defending, culture-imitating attitude. But we need to remember, our faith is not measured by what we avoid, but by what we embrace. Make sure you notice that James is proving the point here of how sinful harshiality it is by placing it in the same categories as murder and adultery. Sin is sin, and one sin is just as sinful as another sin. Now, some sins have greater consequences than others, but all sin marks us as a transgressor. James tells us, stop making excuses. The word transgressor literally means someone who's on a path and intentionally steps over the path he knows he's supposed to be on to get on another one. Right, that's that visual image that comes with that, that word. And the last truth James wants us to see, hey, we want to grow up, embrace the heart of God, stop making excuses, choose love, embrace mercy. Look at verse 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Guys, the antidote to partiality, to favoritism, to racism, to classism is to remember that we are creatures who are accountable to someone greater. We will give an account to the one who has saved us, right? The one who's redeemed us, the one who has given us freedom to be his slaves and to demonstrate his nature to the world. When we do this, we're following, we're following the law of liberty. We're following the royal law. Submission to the will of God brings the slaves of God the greatest amount of joy and freedom. That's why James finishes his thoughts with these last two commands. Speak and act as those who have experienced mercy and now are free to liberally extend that same mercy to other people. Remember, everything that we're talking about tonight is in the context of chapter one, verses 26 and 27. 
If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person religion is, religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James is effectively telling us, guys, don't stop looking for opportunities to love and serve all of those who need to be shown mercy. So speak and so act, right? Keep showing mercy, keep on loving, don't stop, just do it. James wraps up this whole summary, this whole section with a summary of the entire discussion in verse 13. We already read it. Let me read it to you again. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Verse 13 is, a, it's an aphorism. Not that you'll ever remember that, but it's a fancy word that basically means it's two wisdom sayings that are joined together with no conjunction in the middle for all you English buffs out there. So it's, it's done in Greek um, grammar to help show a point, to highlight these two truths or things we need to remember. One is for the unbeliever and one is for the believer. One truth reflects the unbelieving world. The world is known for its lack of mercy and will be judged without mercy. No mercy will be shown to the great white throne judgment. It'll be too late. It'll be forever too late. The unbelieving world, which divides itself into classes and into categories filled with pride, have effectively drawn a circle around themselves and left Jesus out. James warns the unbeliever in verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. James wants the assembly to fully embrace the reality that building a religion around avoiding certain things we classify as really bad leads to the judgment of others and ultimately deceives our hearts and develops a religion that's worthless. Practicing religion will lead you to judgment on a number of levels. The prescription James gives to the unbeliever and really anyone in the assembly that's acting like an unbeliever is this. Run to the mercy of Christ alone. Find his perfect forgiveness and complete acceptance. So that's the truth for the unbeliever. Now here's the truth for the believer. Those who have come to know the Savior will be delivered because we have found it true that God's mercy triumphs over judgment. The text literally says mercy boasts over judgment. Mercy's better. Choose mercy. If practicing religion leads to judgment, then pursuing relationship will lead you to choose love and to embrace mercy. Remember, James wants us to grasp that our faith is not measured by what we avoid, but by what we embrace. So embrace mercy. Since we're people who've all received and will forever receive the mercy of God, how can we do anything less than demonstrate that same mercy to other people? Embrace the heart of God Stop making excuses. Choose love and embrace mercy. Now my question for you, the the kind of self-evaluation portion of the evening is this. How accurately are you measuring your spiritual growth? Are you like me on the scale that's stuck on kilograms? Just feeling really good about yourself, but measuring inaccurately? Or are you looking into the perfect mirror of the word of God and seeing what's accurate? Are you measuring by the world's standard and expectations? Right, well, I do this, I do that, I do this, I avoid the really bad stuff, I'm sure I'm all right. Or are we measuring our growth and spiritual development by God's perfect standard? I'm fully and intentionally choosing love and embracing mercy. 
Guys, if you're stuck over here, I want to encourage you to come to this side and choose mercy, right? Because mercy wins. Those are James's last words in this section before he shifts to elaborate on this even more. Next week, you'll see that where James is gonna talk out about what faith that works can really look like and what a faith that doesn't work looks like. And he says, guys, if you're struggling with this, don't choose judgment, choose mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord and God, we are so thankful that you love us. We're so thankful that we have an opportunity to be here, to worship you, to just think and chew on your word a little bit tonight. And God, even as we interacted some bit about seeing how this sin of partiality connects with the Ten Commandments, God, I pray you just help us to do that and think each day as our actions and what we're doing and how we're responding uh, connects with the things that you've commanded us to do. Um, How is what am I doing highlighting the law of love, the royal law, and how much of it is conforming to what the culture says I should be doing. God, help us to choose mercy. God, help us to show the same depth of mercy that you've shown us to everyone we meet who needs mercy. God, so many of us can feel like we're devalued, like we have nothing to offer, like we have no value, but God, we know through faith in Christ, we have eternal value. God, let us boast in that. Let us rejoice in that. God, and as men, I pray you would help us to grow up. Pray you would help us to live out a faith that works, a faith that's gonna point us to grow and point us to be more conformed into your image. So God, I just thank you for tonight, for every man here. I pray you would help those, all of us who are struggling with different things, help us to uh, hold up one another, be accountable to one another. And even tonight, if there's anybody here that just needs someone to, to work through something with or to be challenged, to, to choose mercy. I pray that that would happen. God, work in our hearts tonight and uh, just help us to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.